Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 9th of August, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, Brian, it's uh, code red. Code red is the thing. Uh, the question is, can people handle the truth? And I'm not certain about that uh, because, uh, well, the truth is that there's a new IPCC report out. They produced an, oh, sorry about that. They produced a, a nice uh, a nice video uh, for this. Uh, this is a sixth assessment report. It's uh, the latest on a set of IPCC reports that assess the scientific knowledge on climate change. Is that true? I wonder, including our past, present and future climate. Uh, it's all very exciting stuff. Um, heat waves, flooding, droughts, these are all going to be more frequent, according to this report. Uh, the world is set to hit 1.5 degrees above, uh, that's Celsius, above uh, pre-industrial levels uh, in the next 20 years. I think if we go back a few decades, Morris Strong was saying something similar, and it was supposed to happen by 1980 or something, but of course it didn't quite happen that way. Uh, the rate of warming in the last 2,000 years is unprecedented. Uh, and it's unequivocal that it's happening. Uh, every independent region, well, we'll see a graphic on that in a second. Every independent, re sorry, every inhabited region uh, on Earth is already impacted by climate change. Uh, and uh, uh, the report is saying that even in the most, op what they describe as optimistic scenarios, uh, some changes are already locked in. There's nothing we can do about it, uh, but uh, we've got to stop uh, it going any further by completely stopping all human activity at the earliest po possible opportunity. Um, so uh, let's just have a brief listen to what the uh, United the United Nations uh, Environment Programme Chief uh, Inger Anderson 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 not Anderson Anderson uh, said. Uh, let's just have a listen to this. You've been telling us for over three decades of the dangers of allowing the planet to warm. The world listened, but didn't hear. The world listened, but it did not act strongly enough. And as a result, climate change is a problem that is here now. Nobody is safe and it's getting worse faster. We must treat climate change as an immediate threat, just as we must treat the connected crisis of nature and biodiversity loss and pollution and waste as immediate threats. We understand that climate change exacerbates already grave risks to biodiversity and natural managed habitats. Ecosystem degradation damages nature's ability to reduce the force of climate change. And as the IPCC Working Group 1 report reminds us, reducing greenhouse gases will not only slow climate change, but will improve air quality, it's all connected. It's time to get serious because every ton of CO2 emission adds to global warming. So it's time to get serious. David, it's code red, uh, the world is ending. Um, and of course, it's everything is interconnected. Now, she didn't mention that COVID's inter interconnected with this, uh, which is a bit surprising perhaps, but what did she say, you know, pollution, uh, biodiversity, all these things are in interconnected with, with uh, climate change. So, you know, we've got to stop what we're doing immediately. Air quality, she said, air quality. If we cut greenhouse gases, we'll improve air quality. The major greenhouse gas is water vapour. The next one is, what, methane. 
okay, methane's probably not the most pleasant thing. Then CO2, which is plant food. There's nothing to do with air quality, really. Uh, just one of many lies. The whole thing that we've been telling you for 30 years, yes, and for 30 years you've been wrong, dear. For 30 years you've been saying the sky has fallen and the sky has stubbornly refused to fall and you're simply doing the same thing with slicker PR and better production quality and you think that that will actually make the difference. But the underlying narrative is utterly incoherent and that's the problem. Well, it is the problem, but of course this was the problem with uh, COVID-19 as well. The underlying narrative was utterly incoherent. And we've made this point before, and I appreciate that there are some people possibly that will be watching this that are going to have difficulty with, with uh, the, the challenge uh, that's being placed on this, because many, many people believe it, there is a climate emergency, that it's an immediate emergency and it has to be dealt with straight away. But David, uh, the, the types of science that we've seen over the last 30, 40 years with uh, climate change is exactly the same type of science we've seen over the last 15 months with COVID. Um, and there are uh, people speaking out against the so-called uh, consensus with respect to climate. Uh, they, they just get the same treatment in the mainstream press that uh, people that uh, speak out against the COVID consensus get. Uh, in other words, they are generally ignored. Yes, it works exactly the same way. If you do not buy the official narrative, whatever it happens to be this week, uh, you are no platform, you, you will not be funded, uh, you quite possibly will be dismissed from your post. Um, that's how we control the narrative. Um, and it's based largely on computer modelling. And when you look at the reality, reality shows something very different, which we'll come to shortly. Um, so here is the graphic uh, that they produced in their report, uh, which claims that every inhabited region across the globe with human influence contributing to many observed changes uh, in weather and climate extremes. Um, so the sort of bluey green color shows they claim an increase in observed change in heavy precipitation as, example, as an example. Uh, no decreases. Uh, but uh, there are quite a number of areas there where there is low agreement on the type of change and quite a number of regions, probably more than half, uh, that are limited data and or literature. So how can they make a claim uh, when in fact for half the planet they have no data or the data is limited or it's not agreed upon? Um, it seems completely irrational. Sounds very similar to COVID-19. Mike, actually, your, yep. your analysis there fits that to a T. Exactly. So what did Boris say? Well, he said today's report makes for sobering reading, uh, but the, don't worry because the UK is leading the way on this. Uh, Alex Sharma said uh, the science is clear. Uh, so there, there we go. We don't have to consider anything. The science is clear. But the question is, did the mainstream press uh, cover anything here uh, or ask any questions? Well, not really. Uh, the BBC Climate change IPCC report is code red for humanity. And this just, uh, no questions in this at all. They simply stated uh, things as facts, uh, whether they were disputed or not. Uh, RTE in Ireland, UN landmark climate report is code red for humanity. So no collusion there. Uh, the FT, even global warming will hit 1.5 C by 2040, warns IPCC report. Um, well, Okay, so right across the media, we have the same 
types of narratives, no, uh, no sort of uh, questioning of the thing. Um, but let's just remind ourselves that it was just uh, uh, the end of July that science published this. UN Climate Panel confronts implausibly hot forecasts for future warming because at the last minute they realized that actually people weren't going to buy the story they were giving uh, because their climate models were suggesting 5%, not 1.5%. Uh, and so they had to uh, push, put some mitigation into the climate models to try and get some numbers that would make sense to people. Uh, and uh, well, that... Uh, seems to have happened because the reports come out and it's 1.5 degrees. Uh, so let's see what else has been going on. Uh, Alex Sharma, of course, we've got to remember, just like with COVID, because if you remember lockdown, we all had to lockdown, except if we were government ministers or government advisors, and then we could do what we liked uh, because uh, so many of them got caught breaking the lockdown rules. Well, Alex Sharma can do what he likes. He's tra traipsing from one end of the planet to the other. And uh, we showed this on Friday. Uh, as he traveled the world, uh, heading across many places, uh, no, uh, no uh, quarantining at all, but uh, and plenty of uh, plenty of elbow bumping. Oh yes, of course, uh, and plenty of uh, CO two generated in response. But that's okay. Uh, we've got uh, he was in Austria and he met up with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger there. So clearly not just Alex Sharma that's touring the the uh, the globe at the moment. This is all, of course, in preparation for COP26, where they're going to bring thousands and thousands of people uh, from all parts of the globe to Glasgow, uh, because that is the most uh, climate efficient way to do that, uh, is to get them all in together in one place, all taking flights and so on. So once again, just as with COVID, uh, we have rules for one and uh, rules for the other, David. We, we do, we do. And I love the way that the baseline, uh, the, the statistical manipulation is, is quite a joy to behold. The baseline level for measuring uh, global warming is, of course, the end of the mini ice age. Uh, what, 90, 100 years before there was any significant uh, CO2 increase due to um, any sort of uh, human activity. So, uh, yeah, that looks legit. Uh, doesn't it? And just to remind everybody, as again, we mentioned this on Friday, but it, we have to bring it back on. Uh, climate disclosures are the mechanism by which companies are going to be assessed for how well they're doing against uh, the policy. Uh, and uh, this was the Wall Street Journal covering comments by this man, Gary Gensler, who is from the Security and Exchange, Securities and Exchange Commission, saying that investors are looking for consistent, comparable and decision useful disclosures so they can put their money in companies that fit their needs. Well, what's this about? Well, we've got, got to go back to Mark Carney uh, in 2019, saying at the core of the system now, these questions are being asked if you're on the right side or the wrong side. And if you're on the wrong side, what are you going to do about it? Uh, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt with that question. Uh, there will be industries, sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they'll be part of the solution. Uh, but there will also be ones that lag, beh lag behind and they will be punished. And the key point here is, uh, just as with the COVID uh, situation, Brian, this is about uh, behaviour. It's about behaviour and the control of behaviour. We are, we are going to see in the coming weeks a lot more information coming out about uh, SAGE Group in particular and the immense expertise in changing people's behaviour to the to the correct behaviour, what they say, but also we got banks involved in this, the World Bank's fully involved in it. And um, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing uh, 
we did see Mark Cornage there coming out with that statement. They are going to change our behaviour to meet their model of the future. That's the plan, if we allow it. Um, but David, uh, the climate must be causing lots of deaths. Well, this is the thing. It, 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 it appears that there is a hole in the narrative. We have a problem, Mike. Um, it, you see, the number of climate-related deaths has gone off a cliff. It's plummeted. It's vastly less than it was because, you know something, as we get richer as a society, we become much more resilient uh, against the effects of nature. And the problem is getting less and less all the time. Uh, we're not talking about that, though. Um, and neither are we talking about the actual data. And like this, like COVID, the solution to the COVID crisis is to look at the data, look at the numbers. This is a plot of the monthly annual temperature in the UK. And it runs from, I think, 1990 to 2020. And, and, uh, and you will look at that over and over and over, and you will try and find the global warming um, red zone crisis, and you will fail. Nothing's happening. This is what you will perceive if you're a human being living in Britain. Nothing's happening. We're told we must be afraid, and nothing's happening. It seems strangely familiar. It does, uh, but imagine that, if you will, a world where people believe the temperature of the planet can be controlled by giving more money to the government. Well, this is, this is a very good meme. Uh, there was a, a, an interview the BBC did with some uh, very nice ladies from Glasgow, uh, from the east end of Glasgow, who said that they would solve climate change uh, if, if the government would just give them the money, they would get it done. And this is brilliant because this shows that these people have correctly understood the, f the true meaning of uh, climate change that's all about getting money uh, channeled through the government. They realise it. They're holding out their hands and saying, give us the money. They realise what climate change is all about. Um, it's not about climate. Uh, indeed. Uh, and uh, well, look, I'll just leave you with this thought. This is a World Climate Declaration. I believe this was signed in uh, December last year from uh, an organisation called Climate Intelligence. But So this statement, there is no climate emergency, uh, which has been signed by over 900 uh, scientists from climate scientists, but also uh, geological and geographical scientists as well. Uh, so let's just quickly run through what they're saying. Uh, climate science should be less political, while climate policies should be more scientific. Scientists should openly address uncertainties and exaggerations in their predictions in global of global warming, while politicians should dispassionately count the real costs as well as the imagined benefits of their policy measures. Uh, they say that natural as well as anthropogenic factors cause warming. Um, and uh, well, they are talking about the Little Ice Age ending as recently as 1850. Therefore, it's no surprise that we're now experiencing a period of warming. Uh, warming is far slower than predicted, they said in this declaration. The world has warmed significantly less than predicted by IPCC on the basis of modelled anthropogenic forcing. The gap between the real world and the model world tells us we're far from understanding uh, climate change. Climate policy they, was the next heading. Uh, relies on inadequate models. Climate models have many shortcomings and are not remotely plausible as policy tools. They not only exaggerate the effect of greenhouse gases, they also ignore the fact that enriching the atmosphere with CO2 is beneficial. Uh, CO2 is plant food. Uh, the basis of all life on Earth is the next subheading. Uh, CO2 is not a pollutant. It's an essential to all life on Earth. More CO2 is favorable for nature, greening our planet 
Additional CO2 in the air has promoted growth in global plant biomass. It is also profitable for agriculture, increasing yields of crops worldwide. The next subheading was global warming has not increased natural disasters. There's no statistic, statistical evidence, they say, that global warming is intensifying hurricanes, floods, droughts, and such like natural disasters or making them more frequent. However, there's ample evidence that CO2 mitigation measures are as damaging as they are costly. Uh, and uh, the next subheading says that climate policy must respect scientific and economic realities. There is no climate emergency, they say, therefore there is no cause for panic and alarm. We strongly oppose the harmful and unrealistic net zero CO2 policy proposed for 2050. Go for adaption instead of mitigation. Adaption works, whatever the causes are. Uh, and I think that's a key point, David. Yes, and if anyone wants to see the data for themselves, uh, metoffice.gov.uk forward slash research slash climate slash maps and data. You go in there and you've got UK temperature rainfall and sunshine time series. It goes back to 1890 and you can look at any month you like. You can look at all sorts of statistics and it all shows nothing's happening. Indeed, which uh, brings us on to other models, Brian and Neil Exactly. Ferguson. That's uh, the beautiful um, segue, I think, is the term between these two, because uh, you've been mentioning models. You've also been mentioning that some 900 scientists don't agree with the official agenda. That's a small selection, I should think, of the people in the world. But we don't want to hear their opinion because it would get in the way of the consensus opinion. Uh, so let's come in at a different angle and jump back to COVID. Uh, this is The Guardian from Sunday. Britain's COVID experts are under attack, but they're just doing their jobs. Those poor experts, people are now pointing a finger at them. Uh, so the journalist Fiona Fox says those who attack Neil Ferguson and Sage's pandemic predictions only expose their ignorance about science. So if you dare to attack, these people will attack what they're saying. Uh, you are ignorant and you don't know about science. So let's dig into this article because it's really quite extraordinary. Here's Fiona Fox. We've got a, quite a few of the quotes. It feels like open season on Professor Neil Ferguson right now. Sections of the media and several columnists delight in castigating the epidemiologist or Professor Lockdown for being doomster in chief, constantly predicting catastrophe and then backpedaling when the worst numbers don't materialise. Seems a bit odd, that, because that's quite an accurate statement. Uh, but she goes on, opponents of COVID restrictions blame Ferguson and his team at Imperial College London for persuading Boris Johnson to shake off his libertarian instincts and take us into lockdown. One presenter on new channel GB News described Ferguson as a numpty on air, and the very mention of his name attracts groans in some circles. Critics of modelling often compare a big number from one model with the real-world outcome. They declare the models wrong when these two numbers look different. But if people look at the large number of models that have informed our response, they would see that the scientists have always cited a wide range of possible outcomes and emphasise the uncertainty. Just very quickly, David, uh, what's your response to that claim? That uh, uh, actually there's been a lot of models talked about. There's been a lot of models talked about and they've not been spectacular in terms of accuracy. Um, I wonder, Fiona Fox, I'm just very interested in her background, former leading member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. 
Um, she got the OBE. Uh, she's from an Irish Catholic family. She used to write for uh, or work for the uh, Catholic Overseas Aid uh, Group. And uh, she was accused of genocide denial over an article she wrote about Rwanda. And she's a, a supporter of uh, Glasgow Celtic FC. So that's an interesting uh, CV. The whole revolutionary Communist Party looking for internationalisation of problems, uh, massive government intervention, that would be her mindset, would it not? Well, one would have thought so, and thank you for doing that on-the-spot analysis because it's going to dovetail very nicely with uh, work we've got coming up uh, in the future, um, which is taking us back to uh, SAGE and the expertise of some of the key players. Uh, but let's just uh, move on through Fiona Fox's approach. So she said here that demanding a single message from these models is dangerous because it's asking experts to pretend we have certainty including the uncertainties and the range of possible outcomes, is critical. If models show a range between 40 and 40,000 deaths a day... Sorry, 4,000 deaths. Sorry, sorry 40 and 4,000 deaths a day, the truth will probably be somewhere in the middle. But it's better to show the range than, say, 2,320 or only highlight the 4,000, which the media has a tendency to do. So I'm not sure whether Fiona Fox has even done an O-level in statistics, but if you've got a range of 40 to 4,000, David, um, are you always going to take a figure in the middle? Well, <laughs> if you've got a range of four, 40 to 4,000, you have a problem with the model as, as to whether it's actually telling you anything because the middle number in that doesn't really mean anything that's a range of confidence it can be anywhere within that and of course at one extreme the policy conclusion is don't do anything and at the other extreme the policy conclusion is hit the panic button close down the entire economy and imprison the, the population in a sort of house arrest um she doesn't seem to grasp the significance of this, and she's not really uh, engaging with the issue, I would suggest. Uh, I think you're probably spot on there. So let's follow up with this comment from her, because she says that was the kind of range and numbers, sorry, there's a, a, du a duplication of numbers. This was the kind of range and numbers of the scientific advisory group for emergency SAGE uh, that they provided in November. Early in January 2021, we saw almost 2,000 deaths a day in line with the SAGE modelling. Uh, so uh, clearly this lady is in some trouble here over uh, modelling and interpretation and indeed the advice that we received. She says that any scientific advice the government included that which preceded the lockdown was a result of hundreds of researchers throughout the UK working collaboratively to constantly reassess data, refine methodology, challenge assumptions and compare and debate results to reach a scientifically sound consensus. Well, that's a wonderful claim, but of course the reality is anybody who, dis who dared to challenge the uh, uh, consensus that they were desperately trying to create was simply banned or shunned or not reported. Uh, she says the whole point of SAGE and the SPIMO advisory group is that we don't rely on individual models of views, but develop a consensus of what the science is telling us, which can be useful to policymakers. And it's right that scientists and evidence are scrutinised. The scientific endeavour is based on testing ideas and self-correction and external challenges make science better. 
but calling scientists rude names, encouraging the public not to trust, trust experts who revise their data and create themselves is anti-science and anti-intellectual. Uh, but of course, we know that for the whole of the COVID-19 uh, so-called pandemic, nobody is allowed to have a contra-opinion to that coming out of SAGE. So um, the article was interesting. I bring up this photograph and uh, why did it fascinate me? Because it's right at the end of the article where suddenly uh, above the man himself, Mr. Ferguson, we learn that Fiona Fox is chief executive of the Science Media Center. Uh, so that was an interesting statement. Let's make sure everybody can see it. This is how it appeared in the article. And if we go and have a look at them, well, all of a sudden we're into a very interesting uh, organization. Here we are, an independent press office helping to ensure the public have access to the best scientific evidence and advice. Uh, we've got specialist COVID-19 information. And we've also got links through to the COVID-19 vaccine media hub. But where it gets interesting is uh, when we have a look at how they're embedded. So they were created back in 2002. Um, and this is the result of the fact that uh, um, the House of Lords felt the public needed to renew public trust in science. But the centre itself is now housed in the Wellcome Collection. That's part of the Wellcome Trust. And let's follow it through. What are they going to do? Well, they're providing for the benefit of the public and policymakers accurate and evidence-based information about science and engineering through the media. And then it says, well, our favourite, Mike, they're independent. So it says the independence of the social media centre is critical to the work we carry out. We don't have any specific agenda other than to promote the reporting of our evidence base, science, and we're completely independent in both our governance and funding. So let's see how independent they are. Now, I've just taken a selection of the funding here, but uh, we're in this bracket. We notice AstraZeneca, we notice Sanofi, we notice GlaxoSmithKline, we notice the Wellcome Trust, and we notice uh, the one at the bottom as well, the UKRI, I'll come on to that in a minute. And of course, they've already told us that they're housed in the Wellcome Collection itself. So people, well, of course, they're all independent. Jonathan Baker's chair, uh, Professor of Journalism, University of Essex, ex-head of news gathering, BBC. Uh, we've got Karen Chadwick, the head of commercial finance from the Wellcome Trust. Uh, we've got a couple more people, Gavin Allen, Head of News Output, BBC, totally independent. I'm watching your face, David, to ensure that you can see the independence. Uh, we've got this one here, Ian Brunskill, Assistant Editor of The Times. Uh, the Times doesn't seem to like the UK column very much at the moment, so hmm, interesting. Uh, we've got Jeremy Lawrence, former health editor, The Independent and The Eye. Uh, we've got the Environment Correspondents, the Press Association, we've got the Sun, and if we add a few more, the Independent, we've got Rebecca Morell, Global Science Correspondents, BBC News, and down at the bottom, a former BBC Science Correspondent. But it's, it's all independent. And uh, just so that people can see the detail, here's Welcome itself. What are they doing? Well, they're supporting the development of new and improved vaccines, and they're enabling better and broader use of vaccines that, all, that already exist. And they're involved with media because this is part of their website. 
where they're pushing out advice for journalists on how to report COVID-19 vaccines. So we've got everything from managing expectations to remember that vaccination is a social norm, understanding concerns, and it goes all the way through to considering the imagery. So if we summarise uh, this little lot, is the SMC independent? Uh, well, here it is. Uh, here's the article with Neil Ferguson, but there's no detail of the SMC. So I'm SMC. So I'm going to say the Guardian article rather disingenuous. Here's uh, Fiona Fox herself, founder and CEO of SMC. Who provides the funding? Well, Welcome provides funding. It also provides effectively office space. And that is the organization supporting the drive of vaccines worldwide. Uh, we've got AstraZeneca in here. We've got GlaxoSmithKline. We've got Sanofi. And the one that I mentioned earlier, UKRI, uh, this is a research institute, but it's directly controlled by the UK Secretary of State. So I think if we say, is this independent? No. Are they going to allow anybody to criticise the vaccine rollout? I doubt it. But we did take the trouble of trying to speak to them this morning. So we sent an email saying that we'd like to ask them some questions. Uh, they weren't manning their phones because, of course, they're all at home, shielding from the pandemic. And uh, I did get a response saying that Fiona Fox is off on leave this week. And they're also short staffed, so they can't help. Uh, but they said I was free to quote anything from Fiona's article. So that's how independent uh, reporting is in the UK media, uh, particularly if you want to challenge anything to do with, I'll say, climate or COVID. Uh, now, uh uh, David, what doctors don't tell you has a report here. We can't trust medical research any longer, says uh, former BMJ editor. Yes, this is, I mean, from the head of the BMJ, this is just uh, a, a, an outstanding piece. Um, so he's talking about essentially the, what you need to do whenever you see any medical claim, assume that it's fraudulent and fake until it's proved otherwise. That's how bad uh, things have gotten the, in the wonderful world of uh, science literature. Uh, the, one of the things you have to remember is most science writing is now false. This is from the head, former editor of the BMJ saying just that. Uh, you cannot trust it. Um, he's using words like, some medical studies are entirely fiction with the participants and the results being made up. He lists here a, a case, uh, a, a, a diuretic, um, which is claimed called Manitol, claimed to half deaths from head injuries. The trials on which the conclusion had been based never happened. The lead authors were associated with medical institutions that did not exist. And despite pointing out the fraud, the article was not pulled. The degree to which the, 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 the integrity of science has been totally corrupted, is incredible. People have to grasp this. It's no longer reliable. It is corrupt. Um, so we have a little bit of video from Sam Bailey here. Yes, uh, this is talking about, um, it's part of a longer video, which is excellent all the way through. Please look, look for it on, on YouTube. This is talking about uh, the identification of uh, of COVID and how COVID was identified as uh, as a unique um, uh, and, and novel coronavirus that was this big threat. 
and the, the story is very surprising. The declaration of a novel coronavirus was actually entirely a fallacy. There was no novel coronavirus. There are countless very subtle uh, modifications of coronavirus sequences that have been uploaded. But there was no single identified novel coronavirus at all. Despite there being no specific clinical features or investigations that would allow for the designation of a brand new illness, suddenly it was decided that the 41 patients were confirmed to be infected with 2019 NCOV. The presence of 2019 NCOV in respiratory specimens was detected by next-generation sequencing, or real-time RT-PCR methods. But how did they know they had discovered a new virus? Because they had apparently detected some short genetic sequences purported to relate to the envelope gene of CoV. If you suspect something dodgy is going on, you would be right. How was it determined so quickly that they had identified a new pathogen? And who was coming up with these genetic sequences? Well, it was all based on the National Health Commission and China CDC reporting they had identified the first complete genome of the novel beta genus coronavirus 2019 NCOVs on the 3rd of January 2020. Although this might sound like some high-tech wizardry, this so-called complete genome is a fabrication. It was never shown that the sequence came from any virus, let alone a new virus. The sequences were obtained from crude bronchoalveolar fluid samples obtained from a single designated case, not from purified viral particles. From this crude sample containing billions of genetic fragments, computer software was used to analyze potential combinations and then organize them into a hypothetical genome. Now, this, this is part of a longer video, it's all excellent. This is absolutely key. Uh, if if the, the claim uh, that we have a unique and um, a new disease is false and is based on um, profiling using PCR testing, um, a collection of DNA fragments and then computer generating something from that, then the entire justification for all policies uh, obviously falls. Um, the, the issue here is uh, the, the reliance has been placed on the fact that the scientific methods used are specialised, the scientific knowledge is specialised, the scientific language is specialised, and therefore few media organisations and few members of the public are really able to dig into the claims and properly test them. Uh, Sam Bailey, though, is... Yes, okay, thank you for that, David. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options for you to join us there and that would be very much appreciated. And uh, as usual, just uh, continue to share material on the various platforms. As much as possible. Absolutely. Uh, thank you to um, one of the viewers that sent in an email while we were preparing today's news. Hi, Brian, just had a letter from NHS Scotland regarding people of age 12 to 17 in my household. Um, and then the comments made to protect my so-called vulnerable daughter. Uh, well, we got a, a, um, an image of the 
part of the leaflet. And uh, what's it saying? Is the vaccine safe? NHS Scotland will only use a vaccine if it meets the required standards of safety and effectiveness. All medicines, including vaccines, are tested for safety and effectiveness before they're allowed to be used. The Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency has to assess all the data and also ensure a vaccine works and that all the necessary trials and checks have been completed. The MHRA will only approve a vaccine for supply in the UK if the expected standards of safety, quality and efficacy are met. Information on the safety and effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines in children is currently limited. Uh, the, the, this continues to be checked whilst in use. I'm smiling, I'm laughing. Obviously, this is a very serious subject, but I'm laughing at the sheer cheek of NHS Scotland to push out a leaflet talking about vaccines being safe, uh, saying that data is limited, but not to worry, we're giving it to children and we're sort of checking whether it's safe as they get the doses, really. Uh, well, then the question is, uh, what does Nicholas Durgin know about its safety? Uh, well, she was on the BBC this morning uh, with respect to children and vaccinations. Have a listen to this. All other things being equal, I want to see this vaccine offered to as many people uh, in Scotland uh, as possible, because that obviously extends the protection. But of course, I'm a politician. I'm not a clinician. I'm not an expert on public health. So we need to listen to and follow the advice of our expert advisors. But I think 16 and 17 year olds is a positive step forward. We started vaccination of that age group at the weekend from tomorrow in Scotland. Uh, 16 and 17 year olds can go to drop in clinics to get vaccinated. And I would take this opportunity to encourage them to do so. And I do hope that we'll be able to extend vaccination to younger people uh, sooner rather than later. So just before I get David to comment on that, uh, Scotland hoping to be able to extend that to younger people sooner rather than later. Well, it seems that as far as the British Isles is concerned, at least, uh, the Republic of Ireland has taken that step already. So uh, vaccines for 12 to 15 year olds could start this weekend uh, is the headline in the Irish Times. Uh, and they're saying the first vaccinations for children in the 12 to 15 years age group could go ahead this weekend, according to the National Immunisation Office Director Lucy Jessup. Uh, registration for this age cohort will open on Thursday. Uh, she told RTE Radio's Morning Ireland consent from one parent or a guardian will be required and she urged them to read the details of the vaccination uh, on the HSE's website. Uh, it's important that a parent make the right choice for their family, is the quote from Dr. Jessup, who's also the Director of Public Health and is responsible for the coordination of all national immunization programs. Um, so, David, uh, <clears throat> it can't be too far away uh, in Scotland then. I'm sure it's not. Uh, the vaccine leaflet was fascinating. Um, all these references to expected level of safety without defining what that is, it's meant to sound reassuring. Um, what they mean there is um, reasonable level of safety, uh, acceptable level of loss, etc. Uh, they're going to accept it's going to kill people. They don't say that in the leaflet, but that's the underlying reality. Um, and the expected level of efficacy without defining that either. So it's a completely science-free um, leaflet. It says essentially, trust us, doesn't say much more. And as far as um, the sturgeon there, um, 
She actually said her entire policy, in fact, her policy of life, listen and follow. She's not a leader, she's a follower. What she does is listen and follow. So Devi tells her what to think and she listens and follows. She said, um, all other things being equal. And then she laughed. I, I don't know what that's meant to mean. Um, it's very, very strange. And then she, having basically said that it's not her responsibility, that she's um, letting someone else make all of the decisions, she's devolving the decision-making in this to the experts. She's only a politician. She's only there just to listen and repeat. Uh, she then goes and tells everyone to go out and get their children vaccinated. You think people would be more responsible? Uh, indeed. Uh, so then let's uh, move across to Italy. Well, yes, signs of hope here in Italy, some beautiful people. Now, this is, this is very interesting because what's happening here is vaccinated Italians are burning their vaccine passports in solidarity with the unvaccinated. This is a lovely moment, and it's, it's uh, reported here in News and Rescue and also the Daily Truth Report and, and elsewhere too. Uh, this is people refusing to be subdivided, right? We're refusing to play uh, divide and conquer. The state says you're meant to um, identify the unvaccinated and pressure them, more on that from Nicola Sturgeon later, pressure them and bully them and, and, and remove them from jobs and remove them from society. And here are these beautiful Italian people saying no. We're not going to do this. And this card that you've given us that says we're different from the unvaccinated, watch me burn it. That was a lovely moment. And we see it here also being tweeted out uh, by Stephen Hanke, who says that the people were chanting slogans such as born free and will die free. Good on them. OK, and then let's move to Israel. Well, Israel, which has been the poster boy for vaccination and the, the leading light in uh, pushing forward the vaccine programme, um, has consistently not been having the success that one might expect. So we're now looking at a third COVID shot for older Israelis. Um, and again, just to say that this, just the way that Brian was describing, the text of this is very, very strange. Uh, they're saying that uh, experts advising the health ministry have recommended older people receive a third dose of the coronavirus vaccine, although they don't agree on when they should start. Um, the experts told Haaretz there's still not enough data on the effectiveness and safety of a third dose. But they expressed concerns about delaying the decision. Um, Professor uh, Rahav, head of Infectious Disease Unit, uh, Sheba Medical Center Tel Aviv, head of research team looking into the move, uh, told Haaretz that she hopes to begin testing a third dose next week. So they're, they're admitting on the one hand, we don't have information on safety. Uh, but we don't want to pause because that could be disastrous. So we're going to start vaccinating people next week. So this is, this is an admission that you are a guinea pig if you take this. And that's in Israel where in many ways, it's the most advanced in terms of vaccination program country of virtually any in the world. Yeah, but it's not just Israel because uh, Scotland here, you've got Scotland here from the Press and Journal, third COVID booster vaccine advice could change. But there's a headline here from the Press and Journal also saying COVID Scotland, third booster vaccine rollout expected from September. So it's not just Israel looking at third doses. Yes, exactly. Um, we've got... Um, we're going to roll out, uh, we think, from September, this third dose. 
uh, and when the, the Press and Journal, who have been quite excellent in not challenging the official narrative in any way, shape or form. This is one of the oldest newspapers in the world and they have been craving in their uh, obedience to the government line. But they went and they talked to uh, the expert in charge, uh, Professor Lim, um, and he said, uh, well, we're not really sure. Um, we, we don't have the data and our advice uh, may change sub substantially. So we're going to we're going to roll this out but we're not able to even pretend we have the safety and efficacy data to justify it yes okay so uh, let's come back to uh, uh, other topics and uh, this is rt and the headline is 10 years on from uk race riots that left five dead are we facing new outbreaks of civil unrest this time over covid clampdowns so what's going on here david is is this uh pushing a a, a uk government narrative that uh uh, you know, the anti-lockdown rallies are gateway drug to the more extreme uh, position. Oh, this is a piece of work. This is, do you remember when Channel 4 News uh, used to be actually worth watching and, and, and it was the area where you get more truth than anything else on television and then it just stopped and it decayed. Well, RT was this as well. RT for a long time put stuff out there that no one else would, would, would broadcast. And it's been in decline for some years. But this, I think, is the low point. Um, so the, the photograph here tries to suggest that uh, Kate Shimarami in her uh, pink scrubs um, nurse's outfit and this masked uh, rioter burning a car are somehow in a funny kind of way the same thing. Uh, and they go on and they, they talk about um, the BlackBerry messaging which generated um, the, the riots, um, uh, an explosion of hedonism and nihilism. Uh, according to David Lamy, um, and uh, they record they, they, they record some of the tweets and uh, so, well some of the the BlackBerry messages that were encouraged people to to join in the riots, and then they say, well, it's really very similar now for uh, the the anti lockdown protests because they're organised on Telegram, and that's really just a modern equivalent, and it's really the same thing. So this is a dreadful dreadful smear on. Uh, roughly a million beautiful people who marched through London not that long ago, uh, peacefully, smiling. And um, this is suggesting that they are a, a, a riotous mob simply waiting on a spark. Uh, they, they, they carry on uh, talking about a white riot, um, bringing in Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins as uh, race baiters. Uh, I, I think it they would both disagree with that characterization. Um, and um, taking, uh, again, out, very much out of context, uh, something that Kate Shimarami said at that uh, uh, the last meeting at, uh, at Trafalgar Square, uh, this is fighting talk, this is riot talk. All this mob needs is a spark, a flame. So you see all these people who are out there to peacefully protest against the COVID lockdown are now being characterized by RT as a mob. They have the means of communication, they have the loudmouths and figureheads, they have the grievances and they certainly have the numbers. All they need is an excuse. So all these peaceful people are just looking for an excuse to riot. This is, this is unbelievable, it's egregious, it's dreadful. Uh, and it is uh, pushing the same narrative that the British government is pushing, that what we're facing in this country is an increase in right-wing extremism, that uh, lockdown and anti-lockdown protests are the way into that. 
uh, and that, uh, but if we actually look at what's been happening on the ground uh, at recent uh, demonstrations, um, of course, any time there has been any uh, issue between the police and protesters, quite often, and if not in every case, um, somebody from the organizers or from somebody from the crowd is getting in the way uh, to settle things down again. So it seems like this uh, crowd self-polices in a very uh, intelligent way. Um, and uh, well, frankly, on the, on the, uh, the marches, um, there has been no hint of this type of uh, activity at all. And as we said at, on the march on the 26th of uh, June, um, the only event which took place that could, only, that, that could possibly have generated a headline of, of uh, you know, in the sense of, of police intervention uh, was uh, something that happened um, at, outside Downing Street. It was over in 30 seconds. It looked entirely staged. Uh, I believe it was entirely staged. Uh, and the people that were throwing the bottles were wearing masks, which nobody else was. So it was all very strange. I'm not clear that there's any evidence whatsoever of any extremist thought in, uh, in, in the that wider body of the Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. David, let's uh, come on to uh, Scotland then. And, uh, well, uh, rats... Uh, yes, I just it's just a little um, data point on the management of the city of Glasgow and indeed the nation of Scotland by the SNP administration. We're now having Bin Man hospitalised after rat attack in Glasgow. It's not the first time either. The rats are coming up. Um, more on this maybe in extra time. But uh, I would just say to all the people coming for the uh, climate change um, uh, conference in Glasgow, uh, don't go to uh, the east end of Glasgow unless you are prepared to fight off the rats. Uh, but surely the rats are uh, as a result of anthropogenic uh, climate change, are they not? Uh, I suspect it's a, more to do with a reduction in bin collection services, Mike. I think it might be more prosaic than, uh, than, than climate change. It's food related. Yes. Okay. Well, now, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, we've just had her on. And I'm going to regret to say to our audience that we have to have her on once again. Uh, but uh, just introduce this. Oh, no, this, this one, this one's comedy gold. You, you're going to love this one. Now, the background is Nicola Sturgeon said that uh, her plan, uh, and she was committed to doing this, was to vaccinate 100% of a particular age group in Scotland. Now, when this didn't happen, and people started to say, well, you said... Uh, you were going to vaccinate all of these. Um, Nicholas, Nicholas' response was obviously it was it was the people who who were listening to who were in the wrong, and you have to roll the tape. I I can't find words to describe this. Just enjoy. When I communicate, and I apologise if this is an error, okay. I kind of communicate at a level where I assume a certain level of intelligence on the part of people listening to me, because I think that's justified. And I assume a certain ability to attach context and common sense to what I am saying. I, the last thing I would say is, I, and I hope, I can sometimes stand at this podium and, and sound irritated, and I'm sure I've just done that, and if that's the case, I apologise. This is not just any old political issue. This is a global pandemic. It really matters. And all of us, scrutiny on the government matters, and, even if I sound irritated sometimes about that, I, I know how important that is and I don't shy away from that. But surely we should all try to have grown up, 
sophisticated, nuanced discussions. And the most important thing right now is not getting into some kind of dancing on the head of a pin debate about what I meant when I used a particular word, but how do we go from the sensible position we had, which we've met in terms of the target, to all of us trying to persuade those who haven't been vaccinated to get vaccinated? That's what I'm focused on. Oh, I hope you enjoyed that, because I certainly did. Nic Nicola is losing it. Um, that's a kind of a jump the shark moment. That that was just glorious. So Nicola Nicola says the wrong thing, uh, and it's it's your fault, Brian. It's your fault, Mike. It's my fault because we are not intelligent enough to follow the nuances and the subtleties of of the Sturgeon speech, and 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 understand the background because we're just too childlike and and, and ignorant. I'm afraid. That's what the dear leader says. Uh, and isn't it interesting that that really ties in with where Fiona Fox and The Guardian was going? Because um, if you dare criticise, you're not intelligent enough to understand the sci scientific advice. OK, there's, you know, one was upmarket theatre from The Guardian. The other was was a little bit more of a, a common concert hall, um, but uh, the same message. Um, OK, now, last week on Monday, uh, David uh, covered the drug-related deaths in Scotland in 2020. This was published on the 30th of July, uh, 2021. Um, and it was saying that uh, there were, you know, that effectively Scotland was had the highest rate of uh, drug-related deaths in the whole of Europe. Uh, well, the British or the English and Welsh figures were out from the Office for National Statistics on the 3rd of August, 2021. And although it's not as bad as uh, Scotland, it's not looking uh, terribly good here either. So uh, uh, the the Scottish figures, uh, 1,339 deaths in 2020. That's a 5% increase in 2019. And as a proportion of the population, that's pretty huge. Uh, and England and Wales, 4,561 deaths in 2020, uh, which is the highest since records began in 1993. Um, so Scotland, as we just said, has the highest rate of drug-related deaths in Europe. Uh, and if we combine the deaths from England and Wales, uh, we find that uh, that makes up around a third of all drug-related deaths in Europe. So the British Isles has, or at least the uh, British mainland, has one third of all the drug-related deaths in the whole of Europe. This is quite spectacular. Um, well, last week, uh, Dame Carol Black published uh, her uh, government-sponsored review uh, of drugs, uh, and this is what she said. Uh, this is the independent review of drugs. She said the government faces an unavoidable choice invest in tackling the problem or keep paying for the consequences. The problem can only be solved through, well, I've bracketed it fusion here, but what did she actually say? The problem can only be solved through coordinated action by multiple departments, including the Home Office, Department of Health and Social Care, Department for Work and Pensions, Ministry of Housing, Communities of, and Local Government, uh, uh, and also the Ministry of Justice. So again, we've got another uh, policy area where the answer to it is to merge all the government departments into one thing. Uh, and she said, greater coordination and accountability at national level but must also flow through to the local level. So again, we've got another policy area where uh, effectively what you do is you devolve because that's what you do. Devolution is the, uh, the uh, sort of raison d'etre of everything at the moment. So uh, David, that's uh, what she has to say. Um, we're not going to solve the underlying problems of uh, drug misuse in the country. You know, for example, we might want to deal with the economy or something, 
and give people something to do with their time. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to continue to merge government agencies, devolve government policy down to the lowest level and make sure that uh, we treat symptoms and not the disease. Well, this is it. And this policy has seen the rate in Scotland soar uh, to approximately threefold the very worrying uh, rate in England and Wales. Um, without any really intelligent conversation from any government source about what the underlying causes actually are. Indeed. Now, let's move on to this. Uh, PayPal is now partnering with the Anti-Defamation League to fight extremism and protect marginalised communities. And I find that's, this interesting. David, you can give us the details in a second, but I find this particularly interesting because, um, of course, uh, Probably the, the one area which is going to be next in terms of deplatforming and censorship and making sure people can't uh, pursue any non-government narrative is going to be the payment processors. Exactly so. And the payment processors know they're under threat and therefore they have purchased an indulgence. Um, not from the Pope this time, but from the Anti-Defamation League, a very similar organisation in many ways. And... Um, they are claiming to fight hate for good, uh, whatever that means exactly. Um, and they are, PayPal have uh, launched into partnership with the ADL um, to fight extremism through the financial industry. And this means that they're going to be co collaborating uh, and researching and looking at um, you know, sharing a lot of information. So if you get paid through PayPal, uh, presumably your information is shared with the Anti-Defamation League and, well, who knows who else. Um, the intelligence gathered through this research initiative will be shared broadly across the financial industry and with policymakers and law enforcement, so that's reassuring. Quote, by identifying partners across sectors with common goals and complementary resources, we can make even greater impact than any of us could do alone, says the Chief Risk Officer um, for PayPal. We are excited to partner with the ADL, other non-profits and law enforcement in their fight against hate in all its forms. Now, I, th I thought that was a very interesting uh, comment. They're fighting against hate in all its forms, including the forms of hate which are righteous, I would, have, I would suggest. Uh, there are things that we absolutely should hate. Uh, lying, uh, abuse of children, um, and um, the manipulation of other human beings being... Three that leap to mind, but apparently all hate is going to be persecuted uh, by the ADL and PayPal working together. Can I just add into that, and um, just having a little look while you were talking there, that the CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, Greenblatt served in the White House alongside Obama. Um, so you're into raw political power here in the States for this agenda, it, it seems. Uh, yes, but uh, well, let's move on with this one because uh, last week Apple, despite uh, because David's just mentioned protection of children, but uh, Apple decided to announce last week that it's going to protect children by invading everyone's privacy. Um, so they uh, explained last week how they are going to protect children uh, by creating a technology that will empower uh, people and enrich their lives while helping them stay safe. Uh, we want, Apple said, to help protect children from predators who use communications tools 
to recruit and exploit them and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material. Apple is introducing new child safety measures in three areas de developed in collaboration with child safety experts. The messaging app on Apple phones and iPads will use on-device machine learning to warn about sensitive content while keeping private communications unreadable by Apple. Mm, don't think that's true. Uh, next, iOS and iPadOS will use new applications of cryptography to help limit the spread of child sexual abuse material online while, designed, uh, while designing for user privacy. Uh, and Siri, which is their uh, equivalent of Alexa, you know, a voice recognition thing, uh, a voice uh, engagement thing. Uh, and search will also intervene when users try to search for child sexual abuse material related topics. So the issue here is that, uh, for example, uh, this idea of applications of cryptography, which will limit the spread of CSAM online while designing for user privacy. This is a scanning feature that are, that's going to scan everybody's photographs that are on their devices uh, or anything that gets uploaded into iCloud Photos uh, to see if they match a photo in the database of known child abuse uh, material. Uh, and this uh, CSAM database is maintained by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Now, on the face of it, that might seem like a reasonable thing to do. But of course, uh, as we've seen from the UK's legislation, um, this is the cover story for something which has got much broader reach. It begins with child sexual exploitation and abuse online, and it ends with dealing with so-called misinformation and disinformation, because once you start profiling people's uh, personal uh, material for certain types of content, then it's very easy to profile it for other types of content as well. This is a very difficult area, I appreciate, because many people will say, well, we should be doing something about child sexual exploitation and abuse online, and indeed we should. But I question whether these are the right ways to do it because of the, uh, ex the scope creep, which is inevitably being driven by governments. Uh, and well, just to, to add a little bit to this, let me show you this. This is from the Australian government. Uh, this is the uh, online safety, basic online safety expectations determination 2021. This is a draft uh, at this point. As you can see, it's not dated. Uh, but the government, uh, the Australian government has prepared a set of draft rules that require social media companies uh, to obey, uh, which failure to comply with the rules uh, will result in a 555,000 Australian dollar fine. Um, but what is this about? Well, if we have a look at the detail, additional expectation, provider will take reasonable steps regarding encrypted services. If the service uses encryption, the provider of the service will take reasonable steps to develop and implement processes to detect and address material or activity on the service that is or may be unlawful or harmful. And again, this reflects the UK government's language because the UK government, with respect to its online safety legislation, which will go to Parliament in September or so, talks about uh, unlawful material, but it also talks about harmful material, and harmful is undefined. It is other than to suggest that harmful might mean something which falls under the threshold of illegality. So um, this Australian legislation, or what Apple is doing, seems to be in direct uh, response to this Australian le legislation and also in direct response to the UK's upcoming legislation. Uh, what they're attempting to do is to mitigate the privacy issues that go with this by saying that uh, all the uh, analysis and checks are done on the device. It's never uh, compared to or, or done on Apple servers themselves. They're not sharing your material 
in an open form uh, on Apple servers. That seems to be, the, be their attempt to justify it. But it seems to me, David uh, and Brian, that if uh, companies like Apple uh, and the uh, social media companies um, fall for this gag, and we've got to remember that from the very beginning of the online harms uh, policy development in the UK, the social media companies were brought into uh, Downing Street on day one to be told what was expected from them. But if they continue to comply with what governments are demanding, um, this is heading in a direction which really nobody uh, can want to see, despite the justification that it's uh, in order to protect children. Well, yes, I mean, we're talking about harm, okay? The BBC currently on their website are promoting pornography, right? That's harmful. The Scottish government in their classrooms are promoting pornography to our school children. That's harmful. Um, we're promoting gender dysphoria through state subsidy and legislation. Uh, we're promoting all sorts of, of deviant lifestyles because diversity. The government is generating vast amounts of harm. That's before you get to COVID lockdown, mental health problems, destruction of any form of healthcare for the elderly abandonment of care homes, all of this is harm. There's lots of harm out there, but it's only, it's only certain harms that the state will define. And this is the problem, because the state will define ultimately telling the truth as harmful, because the truth can be very hurtful. You know, you can hurt people's feelings with the truth. That will be harm, and you'll be closed down. And, and this is the direction I think it's going in. Yep, closing down of the truth. Well, I'm just going to jump back very briefly to uh, COVID and language being used in reports. So here's the Yorkshire Post. Chief nurse of Yorkshire Scarborough Hospitals warns that civilian COVID-19 patients have been double jabbed. Uh, so this is the lady. A month ago, we had no COVID patients in our hospital. Today, we do have a ward full of patients and one in the ICU. The message I'd like to share with you all is that some of their patients are double vaccinated. This is a disease that can still affect you and still make you poorly when you are double vaccinated. But I thought we were getting vaccinated to protect us from the, uh, uh, from the uh, wee beastie COVID uh, virus. Um, then the other quote with this is from Amanda Bloor, and she's North NHS North Yorkshire Clinical Commissioning Group. If we compare previous months, the last time that the infection rates across North Yorkshire and York, York was at 300 per 100,000 population, that was in late January of this year. And at the same point in time, there were over 400 patients in hospital beds in North Yorkshire. So you can see the difference. Okay, This does give us confidence that the vac vaccination program is having the anticipated impact around reducing the risk of death and reducing serious illness, especially where those people have received both doses of vaccine. And David, I read this article several times and I could not find any coherent sense in the statements that have been made. The factual statements seem to be the people who've had two vaccine doses were sick, uh, which is surprising. Uh, we then have discussion of statistics, which doesn't seem to prove anything, and then a statement made um, that we're reducing serious illness, especially uh, where those people have received both doses of the vaccine. 
So one article, two different uh, opinions, two different um, facts being presented, and both contradict. This is the schizophrenic nature of the COVID narrative, because uh, we can see people with actually quite impressive job descriptions and uh, medical qualifications, some of them, um, will be uh, speaking about what a success the vaccine rollout has been. It's been tremendous. It saved us all. It's been absolutely fantastic. And at the same time, say, but, you know, we need to get more people vaccinated because, essentially, the vaccines don't work. And if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit the disease, catch the disease, be ill with the disease, be killed with the disease, be in ICU with the disease. But you've got to remember, it's a tremendous success, but simultaneously, not much good. And you have to hold those two, you've got to hold those two conflicting facts in your head and not see the not see the distinction. Is that not from nineteen eighty four as well? Yeah. Well, it it is, but uh, but you've got to remember that this is the narrative that's going to be pushed this winter because this is Imperial College. We've shown this before, but I just want to remind everybody. You'll see the point in a second. Winter viruses and COVID nineteen could push NHS to breaking point. Once new report. This was from the middle of July. Uh, COVID nineteen influenza and RSV. This is respiratory uh, cyclical virus uh, could push the NHS to breaking point this winter. Uh, this is being pushed right the way through the media um, and, uh, of course, on the uh, CDC as well. But here's the point. Uh, Sajid Javid, when this report came out, was, was really shocked, uh, that, but he was more shocked about the fact that he was told that the NHS waiting lists are going to get along a lot worse before they get better. Uh, he said that waiting lists had gone up from 3.5 million to 5.3 million. Uh, and uh, he said to officials, so what do you mean by a lot worse? Uh, and they said, well, it could be as high as 13 million. And he said that hearing that figure of 13 million, it's absolutely focused his mind and it's going to be one of his top priorities to deal with uh, because we can't have that. Um, so that was that was what he was saying. And the question then is, uh, is that 13 million uh, story true? Um, well, uh, here is the Institute for Fiscal Studies and they've done some research on this. They said, could NHS waiting lists really uh, reach 13 million? And basically to cut, uh, because we're running out of time, to cut a long story short, the answer is yes. Uh, and so they've produced a couple of graphs here. This is uh, NHS waiting lists. Um, this is basically making the point uh, that waiting lists are simply going up and up and up. They're currently at 5 million, uh, but what is likely to happen, or at least this is what happened uh, over the uh, last number of years, if you look at the, gray, the various shades of grey lines, that's 2017, 2018 and 2019, the kinds of levels uh, of new people joining the waiting lists. Um, but the point that they're making was that in 2020, when lockdown hit, uh, that massive numbers uh, of people didn't join the waiting lists for some reason. Uh, and that we've been seeing a large number of people below the normal level of waiting lists since then. And that therefore, you know, uh, what's happened uh, now is that all those people have been stacked up uh, and the situation is getting much, much worse. They are saying 14 million is the more likely number. Uh, and so we've got to say, David, that uh, uh, if it is 14 million, bearing in mind the situation with uh, the state of the NHS and the fact that COVID policy isn't changing any time soon, that situation is not going to improve for a very long time. And so how many people are going to be dying as a result? 
That's a very good question. We don't know the answer, but it's a very good question. Uh, we're pretty sure that the uh, the first spike, the lockdown deaths we described them back in the spring of 2020, were due to entirely the policies of uh, putting people with respiratory illness into care homes and pulling away all medical support from the care homes. Um, and that had a, a, a dramatic effect on death rates. Short term, but dramatic. Now, what will this be over a much longer period? Only time will tell. I think if we look at uh, all-cause mortality, um, it hasn't been falling for the past five years, it's, which has been an unusual thing. It's been falling for decades. But since the, uh, the financial crisis, it hasn't gone down. Perhaps we'll start to see all-cause mortality increasing on a permanent um, secular basis now. Uh, I think that's uh, that's very likely. Okay, we're out of time. Let's just briefly uh, leave with a couple of. Uh, well, introduce this one then. A couple. Of, uh, thank you to uh, Off Guardian for assembling some wonderful memes to uh, brighten our day. Uh, this one is uh, uh, from Wizard of Oz. You've had the power to take that mask off and go outside all along, my dear, says the good fairy. And this is to point out that all of the fear-mongering that's coming from the state is just like the Wizards of Oz. It's a small man behind a curtain and has no power other than the power we give them. And then this one, which I thought was rather wonderful, from train spotting, it's now brain clotting. Uh, choose life, it says, and... Uh, uh, the the uh, lead character here has been chased down the street, not by the police, but by uh, a, a series of uh, NHS personnel, uh, presumably to try and give him uh, a vaccine against his uh, will and without his consent. Excellent. David, thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll end the news there. We'll just say uh, to our audience, tremendous amount of information coming into UK column. We are doing our very best to keep up with all of it. Uh, we do see a lot more than we report. So if you're thinking we're not covering something, the chances are we are aware of it, but we're biding our time and uh, tactics count. And it's quite clear from the media reports or reading between the lines, at least, that uh, the mainstream media, the old media, is desperately trying to prop up the current government narratives and... Uh, Clearly, they're worried because people's research is beginning to pay off. So keep uh, keep researching, keep reporting, keep talking to people, and please do keep sharing UK column material. Thanks for joining us. Well, we'll be back in a few minutes uh, for extra on the main live stream, and otherwise, see you 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. Bye bye. Bye bye. 